they, they put the advertisement out this way. They said, looking for a man who is strong, courageous, brave, and intentional about telling us exactly what we want to hear. Now, obviously, we would never advertise it that way, I don't suppose. But sometimes that's the feel of what we want when a preacher stands to preach. We want someone to, to validate where we already stand, to endorse what we already, to, what we already believe, to, to validate what we've already decided to be truth or, or not, and then we'll feel better about who we are and where we are and what we're doing because the preacher has reaffirmed that to us. If we judge, judgment should be made against those who are not like us. If we challenge, the challenge should be posed to those who are weaker than we are. If we call for change, it should be called upon those who don't act like we act. And if we urge for a different understanding, it ought to be to those who don't think like we think. Preaching then must condemn the world and comfort the church. And I believe sometimes that's the way that we see it. And I believe Jesus came into a religious world who felt a lot like that. Jesus would say things like this to those that were highly religious of his day. The, the, the well, the healthy, need not a physician. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, when he made those statements, it wasn't the reality or the, the concept that, that he believed the people he was talking to were righteous, that he believed them to be healthy, but they thought they were, and because of that, they rejected him because his message challenged them, and they were already right. You ever felt that way? Felt like the preacher was just being a, a little bit too pushy, a little bit too condemning for those of us who have been raised to believe in God and have attended worship service most of our lives and are doing everything that we think we know to do that's right, and yet he tells us we're not. Our text this morning, by the way, comes from Luke chapter 13, beginning of verse 6, if you want to go ahead and turn there. But what I want us to do is I want us to go back before that and kind of set the stage and see what he's been talking about because Jesus, on a regular basis, to those who were already religious, called for the need to repent. I'll say more about that in just a moment. Back in, in chapter 12, leading up to this, Jesus says in verse 49 that he came to bring fire on the earth. In verses 51 through 53, he said that he didn't come to bring peace in all situations, but on many occasions he came to divide. He called them hypocrites because they were able to discern the sky and the weather, but they could not discern the, the spiritual elements of their time and of their day, the, the, the modern events in, in, in keeping with God's intention for them. He used two known tragedies of his day, beginning in chapter 13, the, the blood of the Galileans mixed there at the altar and the Tower of Siloam that fell on those who were unsuspecting. And he used that as, 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 a, as a call for repentance. One writer suggested that it would have been humorous probably to sit around the dinner table after that sermon. I don't believe that 1249 through 3.6 or 3.5 is an actual sermon that Jesus preached, but a collection of things he said over the course of, of probably days or weeks, and it was pulled there by Luke because of the common theme and, and commonality of them. But in keeping with that, this writer said, it would have been interesting to, to be at the dinner table as that sermon was critiqued. And the son asked the dad, what did you think about the sermon this morning? And the dad said, I was both insulted and offended. And the son said, well, what do you mean by that? Maybe, maybe you heard a different sermon than I did. What was wrong with the sermon? Well, 
He, he said that, that, if, that if I cared about the weather, I was a hypocrite. And then he used two tragedies where people lost their lives and, and bent them to ask me to repent. I'll never listen to him preach again. I wonder sometimes if our reaction to hearing straightforward, needed message from Scripture causes a similar reaction in us. And so for the next few weeks, I want us to look at the concept of repentance from various parables of judgment found in the New Testament. I want us to look at those parables and what they meant in context and then what they mean for us today, that we might be a people called to repentance. Obviously, we don't believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved. The idea that, that once we become a Christian, that we can't fall, we can't fail, we, we can't mess up, we, we can't be separated from the love of God by anything, even our own actions and inaction according to His will, that, that we can live however we want to live and be right. We, we don't believe that. We don't endorse that. We don't teach that because the Bible doesn't believe it or endorse it or teach it. And yet sometimes we live it as if we have no need ever to repent of anything that we've ever done or maybe are currently doing. So I want us to be personal. I want us to be direct. I want us to be open as we investigate these matters. Why did Jesus call for repentance so much? Because he knew that there was a sorrow and a repentance, 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, that led to salvation. Our parable this morning is found at the end of all of those things we've just sort of referenced. And it begins in Luke 13 and verse 6. The Bible says, and he began telling them this parable. A man, had a, fig, a, man, or a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and he did not find any. And he said to the, to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Several observations I want to make to sort of help us appreciate the purpose and impact of this particular story in this setting to these people. And then some application for us, and the lesson will be yours. Fig trees were common in Israel and common in the Bible times. That we first read of fig leaves, if you will remember, all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and began to make for themselves coverings because of their shame. And then as you move through the Old Testament, you find various references to the fig trees. Sometimes the good things about the land of Canaan is described by the presence of fig trees, Deuteronomy 8 and verse 8, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees. When the spies went in in Numbers chapter 13 and they came back in verse 23, they came back with some of the figs of the land. In fact, later on, the idea of fig trees would be representative of prosperity and protection in Israel. 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 25 says, So Judah and Israel lived in safety. Notice this, every man under his vine and his fig tree, even from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. From the most northern point of the, of the land to the most southern point of the land, every man lived under his vine and his fig tree, finding shade and protection. That's how God described prosperity and safety. Fig trees were used in parables as far back as Judges chapter 9. 
prophet Isaiah mentioned a cake of figs to Hezekiah and that he might bring healing. In Habakkuk's statement of enduring faith, he mentioned a fig tree, Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Sometimes a failure and the pronouncement of judgment was connected to figs and fig trees. Isaiah 34, 4, Jeremiah 5 and verse 17, Joel 1 and verse 7. Even in the New Testament, Jesus saw Nathanael sitting under a fig tree and went and got him and brought him and told him of his plan. So in general, fig trees have a, a common place and mean a number of different things in Scripture. What about this fig tree in this parable? What does it represent and what does it mean? Well, notice it was planted in the right place, wasn't it? It was a, it was a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Now, if we believe the vineyard owner to be God and the vine keeper to be Jesus, which would be the most logical connection in this particular parable, then that fig tree was planted in the right vineyard, wasn't it? It was planted by the right being, cultivated by the right person, kept in the right place. It said that it was planted in a vineyard. It is believed perhaps that the fig trees would have been planted in, in the, the vineyards of the, that day to provide shade and coolness for the grapes that would grow underneath. So providing two sources of, of nourishment and food and, and produce for, for a farmer or for a family, one helping to aid the other. Others believe that idea of a vineyard would be not, not necessarily a, a vineyard of, of, of grapes, but an orchard of more fig trees. And so either they were planted one in a row beside each other or planted one in a row beside each other on top of that which was already there. But this was a good place, placed there by a good being for a good purpose. That's this fig tree. Not only was it planted in the right place, it was given ample time to produce fruit. Did you notice the text? I came these three years, and I looked for fruit, and I didn't find it. And I came back, and I looked for fruit, and I didn't find it. Can you imagine the disappointment each year of anticipating and wondering and hoping that all that you'd put in and all the work that you had done and the, and the rain that had fallen and the sun that, that, that had shone had finally produced and yet to find nothing. And the disappointment that would weigh in the heart and on that mind of that farmer until the next year, until the next year, until the next year. Now, Barclay suggests that most fig trees don't produce figs until the third year. I can't verify that. I'll just say what Barclay said. I don't know. Maybe Cliff can help us out on that somewhere down the line. But I know this. I know that by the time this fourth year came along, by the time this third inspection happened, there was an expectation of figs. I, I get the impression that he had checked all three years and all three years he expected to find it. So if it's the case that three years it takes to bear figs, three years he had checked and found none, maybe this tree had been there for six years and was just now being condemned. Or had this tree produced figs in the past because of the ground, because of the placement, because of the, of the vineyard owner and the vineyard keeper, and three years ago it just stopped. Well, there's no way to know, and I believe all of those have application as it pertains to how we react to this particular parable. But it was given ample time to produce fruit. Number three, this particular fig tree was saved from destruction despite its uselessness. Now, usually when God speaks in Scripture and says, I'm going to do this, 
this usually follows in quick fashion. Particularly when it comes to bringing destruction or condemnation. In fact, we remember the times mostly when God said he would and then he didn't, right? When he told Moses, I'll destroy Israel because of the golden calf. And Moses steps in and asks him not to and he doesn't. Or when he says, I will destroy Nineveh, and Jonah goes and he preaches, and God doesn't. We remember those times because those times were an abnormality. When God says he's going to do it, God generally does it. If God's represented by the vineyard owner here, he says, I will bring punishment. I will cut it out. It needs to be done away. And someone, some conversation happens, some sacrifice is made. And despite the condition of the fig tree, destruction is avoided. Number four, for another year, this fig tree was given even more special attention than it had been given in the past. Let me dig around it. Let me fertilize it. Give it one more year, and then we'll make a decision about that tree. Now, what does this tree in this text represent? Well, I'm convinced, and maybe you disagree, and if so, we can talk about it later. I don't mind that at all. I believe in this context, in Luke 13, that this tree represents the nation of Israel. First century Jews. And if you think about the description that was given earlier, it would seem to fit, right? A people planted in his vineyard. Israel formed, out of all the nations, a covenant of grace and salvation and stability and protection with God. In fact, Hosea chapter 9 and verse 10 says that I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers at the earliest fruit on the fig tree. They were actually called fig tree in the Old Testament. I won't take the time to do it, but in Jeremiah chapter 24, beginning in verse number 1, he describes the, 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 the nation of Israel as, as figs, some worthy of being kept and saved, and some needed to be discarded, but they were a fig tree with figs on them. They had been planted in God's vineyard, highly favored. They had been given years to produce fruit, hadn't they? We have entire books of the Bible dedicated to different time periods in Israel's history. You have the wilderness wandering and the conquering and the, the days of the judges, the days of the kings and the days of the divided kingdom, the time they spent in captivity, the time they returned from captivity. And then all four gospels set it or, or, or set, set in and, and, and pictured as a part of the first century Jewish world. God waited and he looked and he waited and he looked, hoping to find fruit at least one year from this great treasured possession of his. They had been spared divine judgment, just like this fig tree in the, in the parable. Moses stepped in on their behalf. Jesus stepped in on their behalf. Prophets stepped in on their behalf, stayed the wrath of God, brought back a remnant. God was gracious to them. I've often wondered when we would have given up on that nation. I have a feeling it would be long before God did. They were spared divine wrath because someone stepped in. Some sacrifice was made. Special attention was now being given to this tree unlike at any point in history when these things were written 
people when these things happen in Luke chapter 13. Remember what Jesus said? When, when the Gentiles would approach him, he would say things like this, I wasn't sent but to the lost house or the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When he sent out the apostles or the disciples on the limited commission, he told them not to go into certain regions, but to go only to Israel. Why? It was their way of digging up and fertilizing and looking for fruit just one more year, just one more time among God's people. There are some sobering, powerful lessons for first century Jews in this text. Among those lessons will be things like this. Spiritual barrenness is equal to uselessness. If you are a tree that's not producing fruit, then you're just taking up space in the ground. That's what the, that's what the vineyard owner says. It's just, it's out of place. It doesn't belong. Everything else is producing and it's not. And I could plant something there in its place. It's useless to me. Let's cut it up. Let's throw it out. First century Jews should have learned from this, these statements of Jesus that uselessness leads only to destruction. To be discarded and cast out and burned up. They should have learned that the greatest failure in life is the failure to realize responsibility See, no one was being condemned in the parable for being overtly morally wicked for following after idols for being a people who had thrown off God's restraints and were using his grace as a license to live as the world lived no they just weren't doing what they knew they were supposed to do and what they were made to do and if there were any first century Jews in this room this morning, they could learn all four of those lessons pretty quickly. But we don't have any of those here. What we do have is a room full of 21st century Christians who I believe should learn the same four lessons from this parable. That spiritual barrenness is equivalent to uselessness. Is that scary to anybody but me? And we can define how we bear fruit, I think, in two ways. One is by character development, developing and, and, and showing and living out the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Also by bringing others to Christ and reproducing ourselves as Christians. And I'm not sure that bearing fruit should come down to one or the other of those things, but a combination of them. What are we in the vineyard of God where we've been planted? You see, we've also been planted in a special covenant of grace with Jehovah God. Nurtured and cared for. Some of us, second, third, fourth, fifth generation Christians been a part of congregations with, with good leadership, somewhat adequate preaching perhaps, but, but individuals who support us and love us, care for us and forgive us and are patient with us and check on us. What does our tree look like 
we should learn that spiritual barrenness is useless and that we might be taking up space where something more productive could grow. That, that type of teaching from Jesus is some of the most difficult to teach. I can promise you that because I'm standing here trying to teach it, and it's difficult. I believe it's just as difficult to teach as it is to hear because the teacher has to, has to sift it through his own heart before he can ever stand and say it out loud. First century Christians should learn from this parable that uselessness only leads to destruction. That there's a, a, a real reality in place that we could be rooted up and cast into the fire, friends. And again, as the fourth principle teaches, not because we're overtly immoral, not because we're living like the world, not because we're, we're soaking up sin and care nothing about God, because we simply haven't lived up to the responsibility that he gave us to have and be. So, in conclusion of all of this, how long have you been a Christian? Now, that answer is different for everybody, almost everybody. There might have been people here who were baptized on the same day. But for the most part, it's different for everybody. How long have you been a Christian? How much has been invested in you? How much watering and cultivating and nurturing and protection has been put into your soul and spiritual life? Who has taught you? Who's preached to you? What programs have you been involved with? Which shepherds have guarded your soul? Who were your parents? Who are your children? Who are your mentors? How much have you relied upon God's grace and forgiveness and mercy day in and day out to maintain holiness and righteousness before him? What if he came inspecting this morning and he came to this place, to my pew, hoping to find fruit? Is it time that we be inspected? Has enough been given to us that, that, that we should see a marked difference in who we used to be and who we are now and that the world should recognize we belong to him and through that fruit for him should have been produced? Is that where we are? Would he find it if he came? Here's the beauty of the entire parable is that it ends without a conclusion. I've always wondered about part two. What happened a year later? What happened when he came back? What happened when he showed up again? Now, if this parable applies directly to the Jewish state, I actually do have an answer to that, right? The answer to that is the cross, and because of that, A.D. 70, and he did finally give divine destruction upon that generation of people. But for us, friends, our parable hasn't been written. Our conclusion hasn't come. 
So if he shows up today, he investigates our hearts, he looks at our lives, he finds no fruit. It's not that we're going to be cut down because we've had one, friends, who has stood its way in the wrath of God and said, not this year, not today, not now. How about let's give it at least one more invitation? One more Lord's Day. One more opportunity. To just do what we know we need to do. And just be who we know we need to be. He's not asking for heroics. He's not asking us to move mountains or to turn the world upside down. He's just asking us to bear fruit in our place of his vineyard. He's asking out of us individually. He's asking of us as a congregation. Because of that, we should ask it of ourselves. He hasn't come to inspect yet, but he will. What will he find? If you're not right with him, if you are barren spiritually, if you need to become a Christian, if you stood apart from him for too long, in these parables of judgment, We'll have to make a choice. This morning, the choice is yours. You come while we stand and while we sing.